Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from San Antonio, Texas. Welcome to the show, Melissa Johnson. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Great to have you here. Well, Melissa, you've been at this game for quite a while, and I love some of what you're doing. Before we jump into the details, love to get a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Started investing in real estate 18 years ago, part-time, was still working a full-time job. Did that for a few years. And then eventually, I think we probably about three years, part-time flipping, still working the job and then decided enough was enough. It was time to make the move. So went full-time into real estate at that point, just doing a lot of flips And a lot of portfolio building. So buying rental properties, creating notes, things like that. And then I guess about 2014, helped start a software company for real estate investors, creating websites and a CRM system for them. Also at that point when I actually built a team, so crazy to think going that many years without having help, but you know, we did. Uh, built a team and did that for several years. And now uh, moving more into staying in software again, I kind of got out of it back into that again and coaching and still being an active investor, doing some flips and still looking to build my portfolio. So you've been doing a lot of volume flips, you know, at least in one school of thought, flipping isn't actually real estate investing. It's more like manufacturing where one of your inputs happens to be a piece of real estate. And even from an accounting standpoint, when you look at the accountants, they talk about the raw materials that go into a flip as being the inventory, just like you would if you were manufacturing cars or toasters. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the same thing. It's an active business. And so the income that comes from that's really an earned income. And if you're at the job site, boots on the ground, doing the oversight yourself, it's very much an earned income approach. But if you scale it up enough and you start to put systems and process and teams in place like you've done, then you can start to treat it more like a business and get residual income from it. How have you approached that? Uh, it's been a learning experience. You know, I built the team and I think really like what it boils down to, to create that is to have my people in place and have the correct criteria for all the exit strategies so that I can continue to build up the passive income part of things. So I think having all the systems and I use a lot of automation and a huge believer in delegation. So those things together, I think has really helped me be able to run a business like that and not be so much involved in in the day-to-day sort of thing. Now you've done close to a thousand flips so far in your career. I think so. There's several boxes. I actually was just in my garage the other day and I had about, I don't know how many bankers boxes of files in there because I'm old fashioned and keep all the files. So (laughs) I think it's about a thousand at this point. So you don't scale to that level by accident. That isn't just something that happens. You've got to have systems and processes and in particular, the people. That's the key Absolutely. to scale to that level. What were some of the key roles that you had to hire that enabled you to get some of those breakthroughs? Because you would have hit a ceiling at some point. There's no question. Oh, yeah. What were those key hires that enabled you to break through? It's really important to understand where your strengths and weaknesses are, what you're good at, what you're not good at, what gives you energy, what doesn't. And so I took that approach with hiring people, just starting to take things off my plate that I either wasn't good at, or I wanted somebody that was better than me that could do them. So the first thing for me, I'm not very good at sales. 
So the acquisitions part of that, like building an acquisitions team, that was really important. And then the biggest thing that really took us far forward was having a COO, which I didn't think that I needed at the time. But once I put somebody in that seat, it made such a huge difference. It really took a lot of the burden off me so that I could actually sit in that CEO seat and be the visionary person and really drive the company through my vision and not so much in the day-to-day operational type things. Having somebody that could handle all that was really key to growing that business successfully, I believe. When you were scaling up, the first thing to do is to start to staff out some of those key roles. And then you grow to a certain level where you almost need a second layer in the organization. And how did you make the decision that you maybe needed to bring in a second layer of folks? When things start slipping, you know, when thing when you start to notice, and obviously you don't want it to get to that point, but there's so much going on. There's so many moving pieces. And so as people reach that point, that that sort of like overload or overwhelm point, and we know at that point, automation isn't going to help anything else. Like we need to bring somebody else in because I'm a huge believer in systems and automation. So I don't need as many people. I like to do things really well with a really small and lean team and be really focused more on revenue at this point versus volume. And so that kind of changed some things up for us too, I think. Now, are you doing all of this work locally in the San Antonio market or are you immersed in multiple different geographic areas? I stick to San Antonio and I get that question a lot. And I really feel like for me, I would rather, there's, there's so much here, there's so much opportunity where I'm at. And I just feel like being the master of your market is, is a huge key too. like when, you know, like I know San Antonio market back and forth. I know everything. I know where the zip codes, you know, where things are happening. I know the boundaries for things. Like, is that a historic district? Is that an opportunity zone? Is that an area of gentrification going on? When you really know that market, just, it makes a huge difference. And you can do that in other markets, I think, but that's really something that takes a lot of time and effort to build up. And there's just so much opportunity here. There really wasn't a reason to to move into any other markets at this time. I love that. I think that makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, you're able to look at this city and say, okay, without even calling up a set of comps from a, from a broker, you know the numbers, like they're just second nature. They're just part of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can look at any neighborhood at this point pretty much and put an ARV on something pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, dollars per square foot, you know, mm-hmm. all of that, both in terms of rent as well as in terms of final sale price. Yes. That is so key. And oftentimes I see people doing one project here, another project in another city, and they have no concentration of asset, but more importantly, they have no concentration of knowledge. And that to me is a recipe for disaster because you just don't know what's happening in the market because real estate at the end of the day is hyper-local. Now it doesn't mean it has to be local, but hyper-local means that the values vary from one block to the next from one side of the freeway to the next and so on. Mm -hmm. And unless you have that level of local knowledge, just drawing a one mile circle around a pin makes no sense. I agree. (laughs) I see it all the time. I do too. And I've actually put that into play in our marketing too, which has been really interesting because I love marketing and something when you really know your market, you can identify even what marketing techniques work better in certain areas. Like we did a deep dive into that and I was able to discover that hey, on this side of town, we're getting a ton of web leads. 
that's really effective in the side of town. So what's going on over there? Well, it's higher priced homes. It's a higher level of education. It's, you know, it's just a different scenario versus this part of town where we're not getting so many web leads, but direct mail works really well. So I know I can pull funds like, okay, it's not going to make any sense to do mailing in this area because that's a very heavy web traffic area. So let's take those funds and reallocate them into places, you know, put that marketing to work where it's actually producing results. That makes a lot of sense. Now, of course, when you're in the flipping business, you're probably looking for sources of properties. That's part of your marketing. And then the second part, of course, is the disposition side, selling those out on the open market. Talk to me a little bit about the balance of those two and how your teams are set up to play in both those realms. We market direct to sellers. So we're looking for distressed homeowners, people with multiple pain points. I know a lot of people pull huge lists and they're hitting like kind of shotgunning stuff out. That hasn't been my particular thing. (laughs) I don't choose to focus that. I, I choose to be very focused with the marketing that way. So I think that makes a huge difference. And then on the disposition side is just really building those relationships and understanding what people are looking for being able to say, okay, well, we have these opportunities here that we've been working with these motivated sellers. And now we know that this buyer over here likes that kind of a deal and we can put it together a lot easier that way. But it's very relationship driven, especially right now. We've kind of shifted our focus into that a little bit more and that's producing really good results for us. Some people that are in the flipping business, they put a house back on the market and they expect the buyer to be an owner occupant. And then there are others who have an entire pipeline where the buyers are essentially folks that are looking for turnkey rentals. And that's a different product. It's aimed at a different buyer. How have you segmented your finished product? Where are you aiming your finished product? So on the flipping side of things, and when we're rehabbing stuff, you know, we're focused on that mid-level price range, focused on just like homeowners, basically. We get a lot of first-time homeowners. We get a lot of military people because we're in San Antonio. We're a military city. So we have a lot of that sort of thing going on. The past year has obviously been very turbulent on so many different levels. We've had an extreme shortage of inventory in one respect. That's pushed prices up. We've had a massive increase in material costs. That's pushed up the cost of construction. Your rehab costs are completely out of whack compared to what they would have been in 2019. How do you even underwrite something today? for a product that's going to sell in six months with any confidence? That's a tough one. And I think it really boils down to just buying right. You know, really, you got to know your numbers and you've got to still, like, we might miss out on a few things, but I know that we bought the property at the right price to where we're not going to lose money. So it was really looking at the that front end of the deal and knowing like, no matter what happens with the market, we bought that property at the right price. So we will be able to move it. Even if we have to do a price drop, even if the value goes down in six months, we're still in a good position. I think it's also a time to really know your exit strategies and knowing which ones to deploy at the right time. So because material costs are so high right now, flipping really isn't a focus for me because of that. Right now, we would be moving more towards like wholesaling things out because I just don't want to kind of deal with, you know, the higher prices and and trying to like renegotiate everything. I'm sort of in a holding pattern with that right now and focusing more on the long-term passive income properties. So building up more rental properties and creating more notes and sort of holding off on the flipping until things settle out a little bit more. 
and then wholesaling, obviously. But you really need to know what your exit strategies are and when to deploy them, depending on what's going on in the market. So that's a very interesting response because a lot of folks that are in the flipping business that I've spoken with have seen the rapid increase in prices as, in fact, an opportunity for them to increase their investment in flipping and to do more volume because they've said, well, the prices have gone up faster than the cost of construction, so I'm still way ahead with still, in my mind, a fair bit of uncertainty as to what those end prices are going to be six or 12 months from now. I agree. And I've always been a very conservative investor. So I think that that's part of why I've been able to stay in the business for so long is just by making those decisions and delaying the, you know, like, yeah, we could do that now, but if something changes and then we're holding the bag for all these properties that aren't worth what we thought they were going to be worth or they're mid renovation and the pricing just keeps, if it continues to go up, then what? So I think those are important things to think about too. I love that. Well, Melissa, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Sure. I have a website. It's the melissajohnson.com, T-H-E-M-E-L-I-S-S-A johnson.com. And on the site, I have just, you know, about me, I have a podcast, I have uh, some coaching opportunities, and that's really the best way. All my social links are on there also on the bottom of the first page. Well, Melissa, been a pleasure to connect, pleasure to get to know you. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Melissa at themelissajohnson.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.